it's all good it's fine all good. i'm just connecting with facebook right now i will tell you when we are live i'm glad you know what you're doing I, I, church society I'm, is live now according to my phone. is it okay I can see it on facebook live Uh, for those of you who are not watching live, uh, we're sorry you couldn't join us. Um, you won't be able to enter the giveaway, sadly, but we hope uh -huh. you'll enjoy our conversation as well. So there are three of us who've contributed uh, to the book. Well, I say three. There, there's sort of another one, but, but he is long since dead. Uh, so sure. we haven't invited the Reverend W.F. Taylor uh, to join us. Uh, but we have, uh, I'm Ros Clark, uh, we have Lee Gatiss and Ash Carter. So we're going to start just by interviewing each other. Uh, so first of all, uh, Ash, just tell us who you are, where you live, what you do, who you are in lockdown with. Brilliant, yeah. So I'm Ash Carter, I'm the rector of two churches just outside Hull. Uh, so uh, I have been here about 20 months now. So uh, much of the last few months, obviously, not seeing very much of, of our people up here. Uh, who am I in lockdown with? Uh, I'm married to Mim. We've got two boys, Harry and Tim. I've just come here from being on the trampoline with my youngest. Part of exercising in lockdown has been uh, resurrecting the, the trampoline. So, um, Great. Have I missed anything? Uh, that, no, that's perfect. Good. We're just going to do a little quick fire quiz. Uh, Ash, tell us, 10 mm. minutes late or 20 minutes early? Um, probably late. Um, okay. I aim for on time. Uh, so, so uh, yes, uh, like Gandalf, a, a wizard is never, never earlier than he means to be or later than he means to be, always on time. Other people may be wrong about that, but I... Okay, I, I may not have said this clearly enough. One word <laughs> One answer. One word answers. All right. <laughs> we wanted um, chapters in the book to only be like 100, 200 words, and they ended up being like 20, 25 pages. So, yeah, you know, absolutely. Uh, okay, musical podcasts. Uh, podcasts, I think, at the moment. Okay, morning prayer or evening prayer? Uh, morning, I think. Okay. Uh, Revelation 1 to 3 or Revelation 4 to 22? Uh, I've taught all of it. So. Good. Um, uh, the, the, yeah, I wouldn't want to cut either piece out, I think. Good, I'm sure that's the right answer. What was the last TV show that you binge watched? Oh, good grief. I've not done that for such a long time. I'm not even sure I could tell you the answer to that. Uh, <laughs> movies rather than TV. Okay, movies rather than TV. Uh, read or write? Uh, write. Okay. But, I love to read, so. but you love to read as well. Great. Uh, Ash, why don't you interview Lee? Lovely. Lee, who are you? What do you do? Who, who are you stuck in your man shed with? <laughs> My man shed? I am Lee Gatiss. I am the director of Church Society. I live here in Cambridge where it's a beautiful sunny and a hot day and I am stuck in lockdown with uh, my lovely wife Kerry of 24 years. That is, we've been married 24 years. She's not 24 years old. Um, to, I won't tell you how old she is, but she's got a, a big, big birthday coming up next month. Uh, and my three children, Josh, Cara, and Lucy. And uh, some of them may be watching on Facebook right now. I'm not sure. And deeply embarrassed to have been name dropped by you. Um, <laughs> give us your the last book you read, Lee. The last book I read, I think, was Bloodlines by John Piper, which is a book about Christian responses to racism. Great. Hot topic. Um, tea or coffee? Yeah. Coffee. 
Sweet or savoury? Sweet. Calvin or Luther? Calvin. Yeah. Um, mornings or evenings, Lee? Where, where do you sit? I like both of them. Yeah, I like my day to consist of one of each. <laughs> mornings! Morning. If I have to pick. Mornings. Yeah. You can do more work in the morning, can't you? Okay. Let, let me hand you over to Lee, who will interview Ross. <laughs> <laughs> this is so slick, isn't it? This yeah. uh, arrangement. Uh, so, Ros, uh, tell me, Ros, who are you, uh, what do you do, and how good is your boss? Well, uh, so I am Ros Clark. I am the Associate Director of Church Society. And I would say my boss, on a scale of 0 to 10, I mean, five and a half, maybe? What? I mean, I would say adequate, satisfactory. <laughs> Charming. Charming. And... Um, uh, when did you get to review your pay? <laughs> Probably didn't do annual reviews on, on Facebook. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, is it true that you live in a shed, so you're all on your own during lockdown? Yeah, well, it's the old shed. So, I mean, it has been converted. It's, it's not like um, it was when the, the sheep lived in it. But yes, I do live on my own. Yeah. What was the last piece of crafting that you did? The last one that I did any work on or the last one that I finished? Both. Okay. Um, so, well, the last thing that I did any work on is a, um, oh, I can't even describe it really. You have to go and look at my Instagram feed. It's a sort of a patchwork, but it's not really a patchwork. Um, and the last thing that I finished was uh, a t-shirt that I sewed a few weeks ago. Okay. Here's a quick fire question. Just to remind you they're supposed to be quick fire as you reminded ash uh telepathy or teleportation oh teleportation every time really yeah it's the best you... superpower isn't it never having to travel it would be very useful but then you've got zoom now so you don't really need to worry about that would you prefer no. to be in the ark for 40 days or in the stomach of a whale for three days or large fish depending on your yes opinion? um i mean i think it's got to be the ark hasn't it although I mean, you wouldn't want to put me in charge of a, a ship full of animals, probably. I don't know how many would make it three to the other end. <laughs> is that Make because you them or just get to feed them? Yeah, I just, I'm not very good at looking after animals. I mean, it's not like I've killed any. Yeah, no, exactly. Other people look after them on the farm, not me. <laughs> I really expected you to be more, uh, I don't know, agrarian and good with animals and that sort of thing, for living on a farm. Oh, well. Uh, plague of locusts or plague of boils? Oh, I mean, locusts, maybe. I feel like the boil sounds like the better choice, but I think it would be so awful that I feel like the, the locust would, would sort of sweep through more quickly. Fair enough. And we've got to get this in somewhere. Uh, since we're talking about walk this way, uh, would you prefer Aerosmith or Aero Chocolate? Aero Chocolate. Really? Okay. I would disagree, I think, at that point. <laughs> Well, I've had the Aerosmith song going around my head all day. Um, I am... Um, the title of that song again, Ros? Can you just, just remind me? Well, I, I have to admit, I didn't really know the song until you kept posting it on Facebook, so I had to go and look it up. So, yeah. Okay, don't gesture with the book and knock the microphone over. That would be a really silly thing to do, wouldn't oh, it? No. You don't want to do that. I want to just put, give a shout okay. out to my lovely wife and just to, to mention that uh, she and I were sitting down one day trying to work out what we were going to call this book. 
Um, and uh, Roz and Ash and I had thought of you know, various ideas and we weren't quite convinced by any of them. And then Kerry suddenly said, well, you know, we're talking about the way to go and uh, walking is a metaphor for living the Christian life. So why not walk this way? And then she and I both just burst out into, into song. Um, but that's where the title came from, in case anyone is at all interested in that. Good. I can confirm that we have a winner. Uh, Amanda Brereton, I think, from, from what we're getting through, we might need to just check from, you know, actual Facebook timestamps, but I think we've had uh, a few people who've got the, the correct ordnance survey symbol, so that's excellent. But do keep putting it in the comments uh, to still be in a chance, in with a chance of winning. So uh, let's go on and talk about what we're actually here for, not um, Lee's dubious taste in music. Uh, Apparently but my the, beard. We're going to talk about my beard, according to some of the comments on Facebook. But there we are. We're, we're not. Well, we may get to a question about beards and their value in theology later. But let's let's begin with a question. So the book, um, the three main sections in the book are reflections on the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. And then there is some extra bonus content at the end. Lee, tell us, uh, you wrote the section on the Apostles' Creed. Why does the creed matter? Why is it something that we should care about? Uh, how should it be used in churches? And uh, for us as individual Christians, why is it important for us? Thanks. Well, um, I mean, the creed has been part of Christian worship since the, you know, the early church, the very, very early church. Um, it is a hundred or so easily memorized words that kind of sum up the essence of uh, who God is, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, um, and the main um, uh, events of salvation history, that God created the world, that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried, raised again, ascended into heaven, and is coming again. So if you've got this creed in your head, you know the basics of the whole plotline of the Bible and major aspects of Christian doctrine. And it can be so useful to have that in your mind when you're thinking through lots of other uh, yeah. issues and questions too. It's something, isn't it, that lots of churches have used as part of their liturgy that you recite that together. And I remember being quite struck when I moved to America and my church there, we used to say the Apostles' Creed every week. And it was always printed out in the service sheet but most people knew it by heart, which I don't think has been my experience in churches in the UK. And I was very struck by, by that sort of having learned it and committed it uh, to memory. Ash, do you say the creed uh, usually in your churches on Sundays? We, we often do, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we have a variety of things. We'll often use um, something like, we, we, we just talked through Philippians, so we use the, the sort of summary there in Philippians 2 quite often to try and bed that in people's memories but oftentimes we use the Apostles Creed yeah um we'll, we'll have some sort of creedal statement every week yeah um, and often, you know at least a couple of times a month it'll be the Apostles Creed yeah people sometimes think that because these are written words that have been written a long time ago and because some people memorize them by rote that, that that means they somehow can't be my words and and heartfelt from me but I think that's far far from the truth um you know when I stand up to say the creed I'm like yes I believe in this God. This is the God. This is the Jesus that I believe in. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I mean, that is a, a, an encouragement and um, a challenge to me every time I say it out loud. 
Yeah, we, I remember making a stand, isn't it, to say, you know, a lot, a lot of people in my generation, they think everything in the past and everything in the Bible, all this stuff is totally pointless and useless, but I believe it. It's countercultural and revolutionary to do that. I've said, I mean, we, we, I don't know whether this is true in all, all local churches. In our church, we put the creed just around the reading, either before or after, and just before the sermon. And I'll say to our congregations regularly, this is here so that you've got the standard by which you can judge what we're preaching. Mm. You can hold us to account because this is, this is the Christian faith. And if we're departing from this, you know that we're, we're not doing the right thing. Yeah. There's it, something it, I think very profound as well about it being a text that is used by churches across the world and throughout the ages. And, and that when you're standing up saying that together as a church, part of what you're doing is saying we are part of that worldwide church. We are not some weird little cult sect here on our own with our own set of beliefs we're part of a much wider thing so one of the things that's been a real joy for me during lockdown has been the ability to be uh, part of my church back in america in fact and they've done a thing where they've invited every week one or two former members of the church to contribute to their video services and and i uh, a few weeks ago recorded a video of, of me saying the creed to lead us all in saying the creed together and and there's just that sort of sense of yeah being part of the whole church very uh uh yeah helpfully summed up in the creed when we say that um so it's a good thing for us as christians individually to be able to state our own beliefs it's a good thing to be able to do as a church together to um describe sort of uh our part in the wider church and the um faith that, that we're trying to express in everything that we do it's not in the bible though is it lee no it's not it's not although it entirely sums up the message of the bible and um we believe it and recite it because it may be proved by most certain warrants of scripture as the uh, as the 39 articles say that as a subordinate standard underneath the bible it's not something we believe for its own sake but because it summarizes the message of the Bible in a way that would be recognized by Christians in every other century. Uh, they would yeah. recognize that faith and that, um, that way of summarizing what we believe. So I be don't believe it because it was believed by the early church necessarily. I believe it because it can be proved by most certain warrants of Holy Scripture itself. Yeah. And the, there is a tradition that you still see that in a lot of old church buildings of having these three texts, the, the creed and the commandments and the Lord's Prayer, literally carved in stone or sometimes painted on very nice boards at the front of a church. Yeah, I think you look at sort of post-Reformation English culture and it was, who did, where did the, the Puritans go to say, we believe these things and and that shows that we are the people who are connected with the early church you know we, we're the ones who stand in 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 line with all of these these other people down through the history of the church mm. it was it was a way of saying look i know the reformation is a bit of a it's tumultuous and there's all sorts of stuff going on but ultimately it comes down to this you know we're standing with all of god's people everywhere who've ever said these things mm. as being a summary of, of, of the christian faith yeah, um, it was it was a way of saying this is orthodoxy. This is this is this is who's in. 
Yeah. So we have a, we have a couple of questions. Um, Michael Hayden, I'm not going to ask Lee to recite the Athanasian Creed now, although I'm sure he can. Um, Paul Kingman asks, uh, do we think that the highly abbreviated version of, of the sort of questions and answers that you get at baptism, is that an accurate creed to use? I wonder if maybe accurate or, or sufficient. I, I don't know necessarily that I think there's anything wrong with it particularly, but, but it may not be a full summary of the creed. Um, yeah, Lee, what, what do you think about that? Would you, should we be saying together the, the uh, Apostles' Creed in full, for example, at baptism? I think it's better to say the Apostles' Creed in full at baptism. And I actually think um, that says something if you're doing that. Uh, if, you're, if, it's, if you're talking about an adult baptisant, then I think they should be able to, to stand up and say, yeah, I believe in this God. Um, this, I believe in this Jesus Christ. And I think that that's a really helpful thing for them to do when it's um, when it's being asked of the godparents and the parents of a child who's being baptised. Again, I think they're taking um, the, the making the oaths and promises on behalf of the child. Uh, I think it would be great to hear them actually say the whole creed. Um, I think there's a place for a shortened version. It's the same when we get to talking about the Ten Commandments, isn't it? So we often go through the Ten Commandments in Anglican liturgy but there's also Jesus's own summary of the law which is often used in place of it and I think there's a place for both but I think it'd be great in um, baptism services to hear more of the full uh, the creed in fact you know we ought to use the Nicene creed a bit more often too the, the even longer creed which is a little clearer and more precise about various things yeah. we do mention that of course in the book on some of the points on the creed where the Athanasiately Athanasian Creed or the Nicene Creed are a little fuller or better at various things. I do mention that in that in those chapters. So uh, Michael Hayden and others asking questions about that on Facebook, of course, well, I'm sure you love <laughs> to read those chapters when they Good. buy their copy of the book. Well, we should probably move on to the second section of the book. So this is the section that I wrote uh, on the Ten Commandments. And I guess one of the big questions around the Ten Commandments is how relevant they still are for us as Christians. Obviously, they're part of the Old Testament. They're part of the Old Testament law. And I think, you know, there have always been some Christians that have had questions about, well, how and how much and in what way does the Old Testament law apply to us as Christians? And one of the things I was very struck by when I was writing this and, and thinking about this is how much we need to understand the Ten Commandments in the historical context of the narrative uh, where they come. So they're given to God's people at a particular time in salvation history. They're given to them after they have been saved, after they have been brought through the Passover and uh, through the Red Sea and into the desert. And so it's really clear from that narrative that the commandments and the law as a whole, of which the, the commandments are sort of just a, the sort of summary and the, the um, keynote, are not they can't be the means by which the old testament people were saved because yeah. they'd already been saved before they got them exactly. so what are they given for then you know if they're not to to save us what are they given for what were they given for and it, they're given as an act of grace aren't they they're given so that people know how to live how to be god's people how to live in the land that he's giving them how to live in a way that reflects his character and then the, what does the new testament do with them well it, it sort of 
I don't think it denies any of that. It tells us that Jesus came to fulfill the law by living perfectly in that way. But I think it does also give us an idea of how else those commandments function by showing us where we go wrong. They show us our sin and they show us how much we need God's grace and salvation. And with some of the commandments, that's, that's more obvious than others. We, we more easily notice that we aren't worshipping the Lord our God with all our heart all the time. Than, and then we get to a commandment about, you know, do not murder. And we kind of think, oh, well, I've done that. I've done that. I've never murdered anyone. So, you know, there's one that I've ticked off. And so what I've tried to do um, in the book is just help us to see how those commandments apply to all of us how in fact all of us need them as constant reminders of sins that we are falling into and how we need to be better at living like the Lord Jesus in the ways that he fulfilled them perfectly. Lee, were you going to say something? No, that's exactly right. I think uh, you sometimes hear people say, well, you know, that's all abolished now. Uh, The Ten Commandments, that's Old Testament. And we're New Testament Christians, so we don't want anything to do with that. And I know what they're trying to say. I understand that uh, Exodus 20 is part of the first half of the Bible, uh, or the first two thirds of the Bible, as an Old Testament scholar like yourself will no doubt remind us, Ros. Um, But there is something also timeless about what is encapsulated in the Ten Commandments. So uh, some theologians in the past have talked about the Ten Commandments being like a republication of the law of creation um, for a different time. But then we look in the New Testament, see what's going on. And people sometimes say, well, Ephesians 2 talks about how the law is abolished. The law with its commandments and ordinances, Ephesians 2, it says it's abolished. And you go, great, that's right. But then you turn the page there in Ephesians 6, Paul says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Why should we do that? Because, and then he quotes the commandment about obeying your parents that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. So Paul obviously thinks that although the law is abolished in a sense, in a way, it has been abolished in Christ, there's another sense in which it still functions as a revelation of the will of God for his people. And you bring that out brilliantly in your chapters of the book, if I can say that. Uh, You can say that as often as you like. It's worth buying the book, everyone, just for Roz's section on the Ten Commandments. Ash, what were you going to say? It strikes me as as self-evident doesn't it that that salvation is not simply christ removing the the guilt and the judgment but christ defecting a complete salvation from sin uh, in at, at the final day when we stand before the throne of grace completely cleansed there will be nothing sinful in the whole of that new kingdom and it seems to me equally evident from passages like 2 corinthians three eighteen that um, we are expected as we dwell on Christ to become like Christ. Now, you, now Christ who completely fulfilled the law and, and did so in such a glorious way that it is called a revelation of glory. And we become ever increasingly glorious as we dwell on Christ and become like him. So w- whether, you, whether you go back and forage around in, in the, the books of the law and go, how do I apply this particular quirky law about parapets and roofs and stuff? some work would need to be done there but the fact that christ fulfilled that perfectly and we are to become just like him and we will become just like him and it is the spirit's purpose to make us more like jesus suggests that we've got lots to learn about not not just about being thankful for the grace of 
of justification, but also appreciate what God is trying to do in us to make us more like Christ now. I love Absolutely. that thinking about Jesus, you know, because Jesus perfectly kept the law. And if we want to know more about Jesus, I want to know what the law was that he was keeping. Yeah. Uh, Jesus lived by the Ten Commandments and kept them all utterly perfectly. So yes. if you want to know more about the life and glory of Jesus, you can study the life he lived by looking at the Ten Commandments. Yes. Thing. And so one of the things I want to just point out about the book is that it's not it's not just an exposition or commentary on these texts. Um, they're divided up, each of them, into their, their sections. So with the Ten Commandments, obviously, for each commandment. And each of those sections only, I'm just looking uh, at the one on the Tenth Commandments, four pages. So it's not long. And then there's three questions for reflection. So the idea is that you could do this. You could do this in your daily quiet time, for example. Read through yeah. the, the uh, pages, three or four pages. And then there's three questions to reflect on you may or may not be able to to read that from uh, lee's screen um and then there's also a prayer so obviously we hope it would lead into to kind of wider prayer but there's a prayer there that just helps to embed some of the things that each of the sections is is talking about that you've had chance to reflect on how that might apply in your own life so on the 10 on the 10th commandment one of the questions there is it more difficult to be obedient to god in your thoughts or in your actions and why is that? So, you know, things to think about, things to put into practice, and then something to pray about each day. So I think it would be a really terrific thing to work through uh, on your own in your quiet times, but also it could easily be adapted uh, to use uh, with small groups and so on. And so then we got into the third of our main text, which is the Lord's Prayer. Now, I would guess probably most of our viewers know the Lord's Prayer. You might not all be able to recite the creed, might not all know the Ten Commandments, or at least in order, um, but most of us probably know the Lord's Prayer. Is Ash the order important, Roz? Just tell us quickly. Is the of order of the of Ten course, Commandments important? Of course, the order is important. Yes. Um, have you realised as well that we do have some questions about the uh, the, oh, the sorry. Ten Commandments we, before we move on? We do. We have well. We have one question. question. The commandment yes, about the question. Sabbath does it still apply? Um, yes, it does. And George, if you read the book. Uh, I will tell you in what ways I think it does still apply. Um, but it certainly isn't just abolished. Um, so like all the other commandments and laws, as we've been talking about, Jesus' fulfillment of those doesn't mean that they are then abolished to us. Now, there are some questions, obviously, about what that means for Christians as opposed to Old Testament Israelites, when and how we keep that Sabbath. Um, but, yeah. but you'll need to read the book to find out more about that. Uh, good. So, Ash, sorry, I was about to ask you about the Lord's Prayer. So we all know the Lord's Prayer. Why do we need uh, help to understand that and apply that better? What is the point of your section of the book there? Thank you. Um, yes, we all know the Lord's Prayer, don't we? Although I don't know if you, if you I find uh, I need to keep reading it off the service sheet at church because we have a, a BCP service at eight o'clock in the morning. And then at the 1045, I'm, I'm there reciting <laughs> it in, in the, the traditional words while everyone else is saying it in the modern words and I get, get so confused. Yeah. Um, so uh, <laughs> if you know in both versions, it can be deeply confusing, can't it? Um, we need help for a number of reasons. We need help because the disciples needed help. Prayer was a given. Um, and I think it's included in this, this triumvirate of, uh, of important texts because prayer really matters when you're, you're, you're helping somebody to begin the Christian life or think about, you know, the, the foundation of the Christian life prayer is, pretty important i think and the disciples come to you and say help us to pray we want to know how to pray and i think 
I think the familiarity is a dangerous thing for us. Mm. Um, it is so familiar. I mean, I think, I think I learned it about 15 years before I became a Christian, just from school. Um, I think lots of people are in that situation. Um, you prepare people for funerals and everyone knows the Lord's Prayer. I and mean, you say, yeah. do you want, which version do you want? And they know that there's a traditional and a modern version and they just plump for something and they've never been to church. Um, it's so familiar that we don't necessarily stop and think how radical uh, the prayer is, how God-centred the prayer is. It was interesting putting it alongside both uh, the creed, which is so much about God and so little about us, and um, and put it alongside the Ten Commandments, which begins with four commandments on how we should relate to God. And then you look at the Lord's Prayer and think the first half of it is essentially about the glory of God and the work of God and the plan of God. Yeah. And and I think we we prayed it lots of times, and there's some dangerous prayers in there. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us. And you go, like if you stop and think about it, yes. that is that is a dynamite. Um, it's a dangerous prayer. It's a powerful prayer. And we, we pray it without really engaging our brains. And I think slowing down and looking at it line by line and saying, what is actually being said here? What is Jesus teaching us to do? How is Jesus teaching us to uh, put God's priorities and God's plan and God's mission at the center of our prayers? And not to say we shouldn't pray for ourselves, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But even there, the prayers for ourselves are quite simple, you know, for forgiveness, for our daily necessities. Yeah. Um, and actually then praying for the wider world. In, you know, it's a prayer that matches very nicely onto uh, Jesus' priorities in his mission. Mm. The glory of God, the salvation of people, and for, for, for blessing wherever he could do uh, as, as he went along. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a prayer that if we really understood it in, and, and burrowed down into it, we become shaped by Jesus' priorities. We pray for the things that God cares about. We, we pray towards the things that he would have us pray towards. And, and it helps to reorient our lives away from self-centeredness towards God-centeredness. It's got to be good for us. One of the things the beginning I... petitions are so good, aren't they, Ash, for that? So if you stress the, the your in the first few petitions of the Lord's Prayer, it can be quite um, humbling. So you know, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, not mine. Um, I often want to pray about my own name and reputation, but hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, not my empire grow, your will be done, not just me get what I want out of life. These are really challenging things to pray mm. if we mean them. Really. I mean, just the very first word, our, does something quite profound to our prayer, yeah. doesn't it? You know, yes. it's not about me, it's about us. Yes, and therefore absolutely. there's a burden on us to pray for, for our brothers and sisters who are suffering. One of the things I really love um, that you do in the sort of introductory section is you show us how this isn't just a prayer to pray, but it is a model for how we should pray more generally. And I, um, I think this is a thing that Tim Keller stole from Martin Luther, um, but it's certainly a thing I stole from Tim Keller, um, <laughs> which is the, um, I don't do this every day. I, I go through phases of doing this, but, but actually writing a paraphrase of the Lord's Prayer every day as part of my daily devotions and I find the times when I'm doing that uh, you know I have the most um, profound kind of prayer prayer time that, that that I ever do because it just it gives you a framework as you say that that is about what God wants us to be praying for and so everything else falls into that and and flows from that uh, in a really powerful kind of way. You think that Jesus meant us to use it like that too. So it's okay to say the prayer as Jesus himself said it and taught us to say it. 
but he meant it to be used then as a model prayer as well to for us to sort of riff on it as it were um and and to sort of say our father in heaven you're 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 our father and and for us to actually do the sort of reflection that ash does in these brilliant chapters um we're to I do that so. in our prayer life and pray for different things like that and i think that's right i think i think and actually having the lord's prayer in front of you as you read for example jesus high priestly prayer in john 17 or the pauline prayers in his letters or whatever they're clearly not the same thing almost no two words run in the same order as they do in in the lord's prayer and yet thematically and structurally and so on they are just rammed full of godward priorities and missional priorities and care for people priorities mm. um you know and, and, and actually what you realize is that there is there is a sort of pro forma way to pray that you can riff on a, a million different ways yeah. if we can get the shape of prayer right then we can go wherever you know, yeah. we, you know pray, pray into whatever the needs are but praying with with that god-centered um world missional care for people kind of shape you know absolutely and once again actually uh recognizing the uh, context in which the prayer comes so it's slightly different in matthew's gospel and in luke's gospel but in both of those places i think it gives us that encouragement to see this as a model for how to pray so particularly in luke you get the, the you know the stories about the persistent widow and the you know uh, the good heavenly father who knows how to give us the thing so it's clear that that jesus is teaching about the act of prayer more generally and the lord's prayer is part of that lesson um, rather than sort of a liturgy that yes. he is giving the church at that point although right. by all means keep it as a liturgy it, yeah you know, certainly I, say it together yeah. as well absolutely but the problem with that is people always say oh it's liturgy oh it's anglican or something well, that's nonsense i mean it's it's the bible it's what jesus told us to do so if you want to know how to have a relationship with god let's do it the way jesus said by praying to god the way jesus suggested i mean he must be onto something surely he would know so this is biblical it's not necessarily anglican or catholic or something like that this is biblical it belongs to all of us as christians most certainly we've got to be careful of me because liturgies can be some come so familiar that we don't really recognize what we're saying anymore so we do have to be careful with that but i completely agree liturgies are only a bad thing really if they're bad liturgies yes and and if we don't encourage people to think of them as something that they should understand and engage with so i remember one of the things for me when i became a christian i was about 16 was suddenly going uh, back to sort of school church services after the summer holidays and we were saying Anglican liturgy and suddenly being like, wow, I, you know, I've said this for years and years and years and it's just been words that have gone from the page to my mouth without really passing through my brain. And then as soon as you begin to have an understanding of it, they are the most exciting things to say so anyway we should move on there are some additional chapters in the book so like i say that is the core of the book uh, the sort of reflections on those three uh, key texts but then there are chapters uh, lee you've written chapters on baptism and the lord's supper and yeah. ash you've written a chapter on the church why why were those things that you felt were important to include in this book lee well, these are these are things that um every church has in some way so we all churches, apart from, I think, is it the, the Salvation Army? They don't have baptism mm. or the Lord's Supper. They deliberately stay away from those things. But all churches 
believe something about baptism and they will do the Lord's Supper in some sort of way. They might call it mass, they might call it Eucharist, they might have adults only being baptised rather than children, but we all think about these subjects. But often I've noticed that in our churches, our evangelical churches, we don't really think about them very much or teach on them very explicitly. Maybe that's because we want to avoid um, a bit of division in the church. So I noticed a lot of um, evangelical Anglican churches will have people from Baptist or free church or brethren backgrounds who only believe in baptizing adults or um, older children on profession of faith and they don't believe in baptizing infants. And so the, the vicar will not teach on baptism because he doesn't want to divide the congregation. And I think it's important to have views on secondary issues like, like this um, and to be robust in our disagreements, but we can still love one another and embrace each other for those differences. Mm. But it, we should still teach on them. We should still teach what is the truth about baptism. Um, and there'll be lots of things, of course, that we agree with other Christians on about baptism and the Lord's Supper. So I thought it was good just to get a bit of time in there to, um, to speak about those things. It was more difficult to split them up into uh, shorter sections like we did with the Lord's Prayer, the Creed and the Ten Commandments. So those three chapters on baptism, the Lord's Supper and the church are slightly longer, but still at a sort of um, easy to read yeah. sort of level for people to, to understand and there's more to go into if people really want yeah to. thank you i think one of the other things as well that we were thinking about is um when this book might be used so i mean we think it's something that uh would be useful for any christian i'd love it to be something that people think about giving to new christians younger christians uh to teenagers and students those growing up in the faith though i really think it's something that would be an encouragement and a help uh, you know, for, for those who've been Christians for many, many years as well. But in particular, one of the things we quite often get asked about at Church Society is resources for confirmation uh, preparation and, yeah. and how we can help people do that. And these are the sort of uh, texts that, that actually we would expect people to be engaging with in uh, preparing for confirmation. And so it's helpful to have that little discussion about baptism and the, the supper and, and the church in that. Um, it started out as confirmation material. So I, when I was yeah. doing confirmation prep for, for people in the past, I, you think, well, they're going to take communion for the first time. Once they're confirmed, let's teach them about what it means. Yeah, uh, so yeah that's, that sort of material comes out to try and teach and help people understand. Well, we'll come to uh, George's question in just a moment, but I just wanted to uh, stick on that point about confirmation. Um, Ash, uh, I don't know whether you've had people in your current church, you've not been there all that long, who you've yeah, prepared for confirmation. Yeah, we've had two confirmation services already. Brilliant. And can you just tell us, for the people who are going through that, confirmation is a slightly strange thing, isn't it? Because it's not a biblical sacrament uh, in the way that baptism is. Why do we do confirmation? And was it a worthwhile experience, uh, would you say, for the people that, that you've helped with that? I think I mean, it, goes, it goes back an awfully long way in the history of the church. And I think... It, it, in churches where we do baptize infants it's it, it's a, a rite that marks transition from um essentially being under the primary care of parents to being sort of full members of the church i think uh, it's a it's a point where the a young person often but not exclusively young people um might step forward and say these things that were said for me by my parents and I've been raised in, I now want to own them for myself mm. with the, with all the, the, the privileges and responsibilities that come with that. Uh, and so in order for that person to say those things, 
they need to be properly prepared. In the same way, I mean, I, I, I do use the same materials to prepare people for, for adult baptism as I, and, and indeed parents of children for baptism as I would do for confirmation. Uh, and it's, it's shortened versions of essentially what's, what's in the book. I've, I've always used that sort of material because I think actually you do want to help someone to be able to make the promises they're going to make um, in a thoughtful way. You've got a responsibility to make sure they understand what the church is and what baptism is and uh, what the, the, the essentials of the faith are. So you go through the creed with them and say, OK, let's talk about what's being said here. Do you believe these things? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you go through the Ten Commandments and think, do you when you say when you ask a, a, a baptism and, you know, do you renounce the devil? You're saying, do you do you follow the Lord in these things? So. Uh, we're all trying to find out find materials and find our way into uh, having some sort of resource that that goes deep enough to help help our confirmands and our baptism candidates to to understand what it is they're doing without overwhelming them i think this this book is 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 we think pitched at the level that allows somebody who's got relatively little church background or somebody who's been raised in the church but perhaps, perhaps hasn't thought about these things the, theologically very deeply to go and read and go yeah, that makes sense. I, I can now say these things with a with a clean conscience and, and, a, and an understanding that I know what I'm talking about, and that's going to be a good thing for for them. It's going to be a good thing for the church, isn't it? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, Michael's just asked what reading level the book is pitched at. I mean, I'm not sure we had a, a specific guide in mind, but I would certainly say teenagers, um, or even younger than that, can read it. So um, I've been reading it with my youngest daughter Lucy, who's only eleven. I mean, granted, she's um, she's on book five of the Harry Potter series as well, so she's a reader. But um, she she understands it quite readily. But I think it's also easy for for adults to read as well. And it's it's a bit like the Creed and the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments themselves. The words are easy to understand, but the way that we've unpacked it and the way that it, it the meaning is there is it's more profound. The older you are, I think, the more you'll get out of the book but it will be easy to understand even from a, from a young level. Yes, it's not full of jargon language, although it is full of uh, biblical language sometimes, which doesn't yeah. fit, fit a nice, neat reading level necessarily. Good, let's just quickly uh, go back to George's question, because I think this is something that people do often ask. Why do we describe baptism and the Lord's Supper as secondary issues? I think that's a really good question in the context of this book in particular, actually, because we've been talking about how the creeds and the commandments and the Lord's Prayer are things which are common to churches around the world and throughout the centuries. And they are. Whereas something like a particular position on who should be baptised or how you should do the Lord's Supper and who should receive it are not common to all churches at all times in all places. You know, different churches will have different restrictions on, you know, when you can be baptised, how old you have to be, do you have to make a verbal profession of faith, do you have to be examined by the eldership, Um, you know, for the Lord's Supper, do you have to be a formal member of that church, do you just have to say that you're a member in good standing, Um, you know, can you be excluded on the basis of um, public sinfulness or, or those kind of things. So that would be my understanding of why those would be counted as secondary issues. I don't know what, whether either of you want to I, add anything I think that's that. right. And Peter's correct in, uh, in the comments there about why I was saying the word secondary issues uh, to do with the, the infant baptism or adult baptism question. I do think that some Baptists can be saved, even though I think they're wrong <laughs> yeah. about 
whether we should baptize infants or not. I think they could still be saved. So in that sense, it's a secondary issue. I think it's still a very important issue. And if we talk about the Lord's Supper, well, actually, the, the, what we believe about the Lord's Supper was a primary issue in the Reformation. Yeah. So the reason that our reformers, such as Cranmer, Latimer, Ridley, the reason that they were burned at the stake, they literally went to the stake, not for justification by faith alone, not for what they said about the Bible and sola scriptura, but because they were interrogated about their view of the Lord's Supper and didn't agree with the Roman Catholic understanding of it. Mm. They thought that the bread and wine in the Lord's Supper remained bread and wine only physically. And yeah. that sola of the Reformation was a primary issue because it got you burned or not depending on which side you're on. So we also understand, misunderstand that language of primary or secondary issues. Um, but yes, I think Ros is right. There are often issues on which we're divided and don't have a common mind in the whole of Christendom sometimes. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. But primary is a primary issue in the sense that if you think that they don't matter when the Lord Jesus commands them, then that's, that's an yeah. issue of disobedience that I think is, is, is a very significant issue. Um, and I, I think it probably is, as you said, a primary issue in terms of there are ways of construing both of those that are denials of the gospel, I think. Mm. Yes, um, but I think that's right. But it, that's right. The, the kind of questions that we think of are secondary are the, the questions about how and who and, and when, rather than should you do it at all, which is a slightly different thing. Um, I just want to uh, move on to the very last thing of the book, which I noticed Pablo has carefully set us up with a, a great question here. Would this book work as a catechism then? Well, um, yes, I, I want to say yes. And in fact, there is at the back of the book, let me hold that up to you, Church hey. Armour, a short catechism. Um, so this is something which uh, I can't really take all the credit for. It was originally written uh, 150 years ago by Reverend Dr. W.F. Taylor, Vicar of St. Chrysostom's in Everton in Liverpool. Um, and he wrote this as a catechism. And I think this is fabulous to be used in schools. It was in use in several schools in Liverpool where hundreds of children are learning it. I mean, wouldn't that be amazing if we had schools these days that were catechizing uh, yes. children? <laughs> Absolutely amazing. Um, so I have gone through it and updated it uh, so that it is in modern English. And I've also separated out, there were some questions, there's quite a number of questions that are specifically around Roman Catholic beliefs and practices, which I've sort of separated out, and also a couple of questions about very specifically Anglican things about the Book of Homilies and the Ordinal. But the main chunk of it is 39 questions. They do not correlate to the 39 articles. But brilliantly, for each question, there is a question and an answer. And then with that, there are uh, scripture readings that support the answer and references to the 39 articles. So as a sort of primer in uh, Church of England beliefs, in Anglican uh, understanding of biblical faith, I think this catechism works really well. So it might be something, if you're thinking about uh, doing catechism, perhaps particularly for people preparing for confirmation, but you know, you could use that in other settings as well. Um, it's a much shorter catechism than many and therefore easier to memorize than many. Um, so that's also there as a little reference uh, at the back as well. Why Great. should the Presbyterians have all the good catechisms? That's <laughs> well, you know, I mean, the, the Westminster Catechism is an Anglican catechism as well, isn't it? 
in a sense it was written by lots of people ordained as anglican ministers that's true um but uh, this one's also very good yes so uh so that's the book and um, we've got another question about the fourth commandment which we have already um uh been asked about and i don't think i have anything else that i'm going to say yeah, about pay attention chris pierce you need to need to watch the watch the podcast again and uh, you'll see what ross said and uh fail and note, you can read pages 85 86 and 87 of the book uh when you buy multiple copies to give to your congregation so just to say walk this way is on sale you can buy it now from church society uh, there is an early bird discounted price so if you buy it this week the paperback is just five pounds it will normally be eight pounds from us and also uh, even more than that if you buy it on amazon um it is listed on amazon we have had some issues getting the kindle version on amazon but it is coming i promise and um it is coming soon exactly and if you're not in the uk um you will be able to buy it uh from your local amazon uh whichever that is and avoid some of the uh shipping rates i think particularly if you're in america the shipping rates to america are about to become even more astronomical uh, than normal so you will probably find it cheaper to buy it from amazon uh, than from us but if you're in any doubt uh it's on the church society website in the bookshop there uh, if you want to buy multiple copies and you want a discounted rate or whatever, uh, you can also always email David Meager in the office, admin at churchsociety.org, and he will be able to uh, sort that out for you. Great. Uh, thanks so much, everyone, for coming and watching live. It's been really fun to have some questions yeah. and some interaction uh, as we've been going through. Thanks so much to Lee and to Ash uh, for uh, your contribution to the book and also to the discussion. Uh, and we will be back, uh, for those of you who are listening to the recorded version of this, uh, we will be back with our normal podcast uh, next week talking about issues of the day. If you've got any comments uh, or questions about that, you can always email me, ros at churchsociety.org. You can tweet us at Church Society uh, or leave a comment on our Facebook page. Thank you so much for watching. <laughs>